you. The masters of the craft, the people who make television ads for products like Tide laundry soap, really had my number when I was a youngster. I was under their marketing spell. We've all seen hundreds of these commercials. They would cover the screen with footage of happy, laughing children sliding in the park or on the soccer field, brutally grass-staining their knees and elbows in agonizing slow motion. And then after the game, dripping dollops of mustard on their fresh white shirts. As a dedicated rascal, an outdoorsman and hot dog enthusiast, I well knew the risks and dangers of an indelible grass or condiment stain. What would mom say? Were those new school clothes? Well, I felt those vicarious concerns of the filthy, filthy, reckless grass and mustard-stained children. How are they going to get those brutal stains out? Anyways, what could be the solution? If only there was a product that could, we could purchase to get rid of this terrible mess. So let me tell you, when my Sunday school teacher, Benny Brown, rest her soul, told me that At the transfiguration, Jesus' clothing was whiter than any bleach or soap on earth could wash them. Boy, was I impressed. I didn't need any further explanation, and that image stuck with me forever. Actually, page 23 in my personal book of poetry reads, Divine Laundry Whiteness. What a sight that must have been. Imagine beholding socks and shorts with such a holy sheen. Okay, maybe maybe I accidentally wrote that poem and there wasn't a children's book of poetry. But you can hold on to the idea that maybe I was writing poetry as a young man. With some apologies to the Franciscans who maintain what is, I'm sure, a very fine church of the Transfiguration on Mount Tabor... I'm pretty sure they built their church in the wrong place. I think Mount Hermon is a more likely option as the site for lots of reasons. The site of the fantastic event that we read about today. Don't come at me too hard. This is not a hill I'm prepared to die on. But somewhere along the line, I did pick up one of these relief maps of the biblical lands. Not sure where I picked it up. Probably an idea for theology and donuts. But it is actually kind of helpful when you read about a story that takes you on a journey from maybe this high place to this low place over here. It can make a lot more sense. Does anybody down there want to uh, touch the relief map? Maybe find out where... I had a feeling. I had a feeling. You want to come and get it, Brianna? You want to come and get it? Sure. Will, I knew I could count on Will and Brianna. So if you want, you can feel what's the highest point on that map up there. There it is. You found it. You found it. You can take it back to your seat if you want. Maybe pass it around. Anyone else? I mean, if we pass around the relief map. That's the one, yeah. Mount Hermon is in the Golan Heights. 
It straddles the border between Syria and Lebanon. Thank you very much for your help. It's a high and snowy, windswept place, about 2,000 meters tall, 6,600 feet, if that's more your thing. If you've been to Kananaskis, it's about the height of Mount Baldy. It was the sacred mountain of the Canaanite people. It was celebrated in Hebrew scriptures and poetry. It was a place of wild wonder, and it was breathtaking. It was awe-inspiring. It's a contested place where they've sometimes thought about building a ski hill, but I don't know if that's going to happen right now. Mountains like these were the places where people imagined that a person could get a little bit closer to the realm of the gods. Like the peak of Mount Sinai, where Moses was given the law. Or the crag in the rock, where Elijah encountered God in crushed silence. Maybe others would still call to mind the mountaintop where Abraham attempted to sacrifice his beloved son. For a lot of reasons, it's quite understandable that mountains were kind of a big deal, and climbing a mountain was considered a sort of spiritual journey. Not entirely unlike the way wealthy Western climbers in our day pay huge sums of money to risk their lives so that they might stand for a moment on Mount Everest, all in the name of personal achievement and adventure and bragging rights. Jesus and his disciples had been traveling through really hostile territory, and he had been depressing all of his friends because he kept on talking about all the ways that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. And you could say they weren't wild about the idea. And so along the way, Jesus took a break from his teaching and his preaching to climb a holy mountain with his disciples. Well, not all of his disciples, actually. Peter, James, and John, his inner circle of friends. Can you imagine the letdown for Philip and Andrew and Simon and Matthew and Bartholomew and Thomas and the other James and the two Judases? The left-behind disciples that are hunkering down in the valley? They're just like those Taylor Swift fans who couldn't get tickets to the Eras Tour. Outside in the parking lot, listening for echoes of a concert that bounces off the concrete. It was actually something else, watching all those Swifties singing along with a band they couldn't see, even while Taylor was splendid and sparkling in all her concert finery, and yet still hidden from their sight. What a show those nine disciples missed. Jesus transfigured. Now, it's fair to ask, what exactly were those three disciples seeing? Did they see the fabric of reality ripped apart and all the glory of heaven revealed for a few terrifying moments? Maybe it was a glimpse of the future when all of creation is set right and humankind is restored and reconciled. Maybe it was Jesus True divine nature unmasked and made known to them for a moment. It was also a dramatic production to set Jesus above the biblical greats like Moses and Elijah. You could also say it was a moment of assurance 
for Jesus' benefit as he contemplated what his journey to Jerusalem would entail. And so all of these things, maybe so much more that we don't know, it's a story with so much overlapping symbolism drawn from Hebrew stories and psalms and prophetic writings. Theologians and Bible scholars have had a heyday working through it. But even still, our very best efforts to understand this story will always remain shrouded in strangeness because truly, we have no frame of reference. I think it is telling, though, that Jesus only brought Peter, James, and John, his inner circle of friends, up the mountain with him for that spectacular moment. Did those other disciples hear booming thunder as they looked up at that cloud-veiled mountain? What were they missing? And why wouldn't those three favorites tell them what had happened? It's worth noting that Peter, James, and John would also be invited to join Christ for what I think of as the dark parallel to this mountaintop event. That would be the painful night in the garden where Jesus bitterly wept. If the transfiguration was Jesus celebrated in divine glory in the company of Moses and Elijah, that dark night at the foot of the Mount of Olives was Jesus facing the brutality and the pain of this world in all of its cruelty and unfairness. Alone, in the dark, with dirt and sweat and blood stains on his clothes. Come back for a sermon about Jesus in Gethsemane on March 25th for part two of our six-part Lenten preaching series. I think it is fair to say that a big part of this bright and glorious secret encounter on the mountaintop was for Jesus. It was a way to put gas in the tank and air in the tires for the Son of Man as he faced a rough road ahead. Some encouraging words from the OG prophets, the old pros who knew what it was like to meet God on a mountaintop who could offer words of encouragement for Jesus. The thing is, like those nine disappointed disciples, all of the rest of us missed out on that show too. We take the word of the gospel writers. Even still, for centuries, Disciples like us have tried almost everything in pursuit of even a tiny portion of that experience. We wake up in the night thinking of all the stains that humanity leaves on this planet, the marks and the scars that we leave on one another. If only there was a spiritual practice or a mystical encounter through which we might gain a little bit of access Maybe we could get a little bit closer to God's mountaintop realm to display for us a a glimpse of ultimate reality, making white the stains of humanity. We could try meditation or solitude, long seasons of worship and prayer and fasting like so many of our forefathers and mothers. We could compose something like the Toccata and Fugue in D minor, We could play the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. 
We could do long theological ponderings in the library. Or we could restrict ourselves with rigorous moral rules and practices in the city streets, in our homes, or in far-off lands. How many of our spiritual efforts have been a way to attempt to access or at least connect with a little sliver of the divine realm? But still, a cloud overshadows the mountain. For my money, our first reading today from 1 Corinthians 13 might be the Apostle Paul's greatest chapter. Definitely one of my favorites. And I love it for the way that he names our frail and imperfect human situation in such a hazy world. Clouded, shaded, obscured. Paul, at his poetic best, well understood our fuzzy human vantage point. Seeing as in a mirror dimly, or if you prefer the King James who puts it so well, as through a glass darkly. Or as Eugene Peterson aptly wrote, we are squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. In the riddle of this world, we see and understand so poorly. Of all people, the Apostle Paul knew a thing or two about spiritual desires. And he knew plenty about giving his life in the pursuit of Christ. In his letters, sometimes he even names the amazing stories of his contact with the spiritual realm. He was an apostle, after all. He had otherworldly experiences, near-death encounters, performed miracles, a great personal sacrifice, And here, in his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul proposes, suppose you did actually find access to that spiritual realm, a way to land yourself in that holy mountain space, gaining insight and knowledge and visions and deep secrets. You had conversations with angels and mystical encounters and miracles and demonstrations of real cosmic power. What if you did have the ability to pull back a little corner of reality and look at the fabric of space and time, a piece of the universe transformed before your eyes? What if? And then to top all of that off, what if, in addition to all of your celestial power, you became such a holy and transcendent, otherworldly spiritual being that you gave everything away and surrendered your life to the world? Paul says, suppose someone did and had all of that. But without love, those supposed spiritual masters have gained nothing. Without love, we gain nothing. What a devastating assertion from the Apostle. And what an indictment of so many so-called religious successes and spiritual heroes. Paul is emphatic, making his point in every way he knows how. Without love, we gain nothing. 
Friends, the way ahead is obscured and cloudy, and we know imperfectly, and we understand in part, and I'm willing to bet that most of us are not going to peel back the fabric of reality in the way that we might like. So many mysteries will remain beyond us for all of our days. And yet, there is a lighthouse which points our way through the fog. Love is the clarity. Love is the marker. Love is the true substance of all of our efforts. Love is how we make these human fumblings and failings into bodies of divine beauty. Love is the final measure. Love is what holds it all together. Love is the radiant Brightness in the dark that we are looking for. Love is the fabric of reality. Without love, we have nothing. But with love, we have everything. Everything else hangs on love for its tangibility, for its substance, for its lasting purpose, for its durability, for its value. Because love peels back the veil of reality and shows us the substance of the universe. Friends, with this same obstructed view, we venture out into a hazy world, knowing in our hearts that Paul's sharp call to love is deeply true. But it's daunting. It's difficult It is scary, but it is everything. In the pursuit of this love, we are in good company. People showing up. Places where we give our hearts. The experience of forgiving and the experience of being forgiven. It's little kindnesses. It is being seen and known and loved by others. Transcendent, ordinary moments of love in action. In love, we behold wonders. The fabric of reality. Amen. Thanks be to God.